Let's continue to worship the Lord together with the reading of Scripture and our passage this morning as we jump back into our study through the Gospel of Mark, verse by verse. We come to chapter 12 and verse number 13. I'm grateful that the Lord has seen fit for us to be in this passage today. Mark 12, beginning in verse 13, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray together. Father, there is a place for us in your house because of Jesus. When we draw near to you, we can become like you. But when we draw near to you to become like you, one of the things I believe we should see is on our own, we are not like you. Our heart is not like your heart. We don't have your priorities. We wouldn't build the kingdom in the way that you've sought to build the kingdom. We'd do it differently. But I'm asking for grace as we draw near to Jesus and then from this passage to see, to see him give us grace to want to become like him. In Jesus' name, amen. Of course, you may be seated. There's a saying that we've all heard, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And so much has changed in our world from the time in which Jesus was standing in the temple here in Mark uh, chapter 12. So much about technology has changed and means of travel has changed and uh, medicine has changed and transportation. I mean, we could go on and on. The world has changed in so many ways, but at the very same time, so much has not changed about the way we think and what really lurks in our hearts. Uh, Jesus is here in the temple on uh, that Monday, and as we're studying through the Gospel of Mark, really from Mark chapter 11, verse 27, through the end of chapter 13, records events that all take place in one day. Have you ever had a long Monday? I mean, this all takes place on one day, and what happens is, on that Monday and all through the rest of the Gospel of Mark, people from all sorts of perspectives, all sorts of political preferences, all sorts of religious convictions are coming to Jesus again and again, and they're coming to question him. You don't have to look at all these verses, but just so you understand here where we are in Mark 11, 18, 11, 27, 12, 13, 12, 18, 12, 28, 14, 1, 14, 53, and 15, 1, specific groups of people, whether they're the scribes, whether they're the Pharisees, whether they're the Sadducees, whether they're the Herodians, whether they're the council, or ultimately Pilate, they all question Jesus. And it's not just questions. Oftentimes they're accusations of these people against Jesus. And these groups of people were not friends with one another. They didn't share the same agenda. In fact, 
in most cases, and specifically in the passage we're seeing today, they were in every other way at odds, save for this. We don't know about this guy. The only thing that puts them on the same side is Jesus. The only thing they have in common is a mutual dislike of Jesus, and that draws them to a mutual goal of eliminating the threat that he poses to each of them. Now, it's here where I would like to point out, when we pick up our Bibles and read these verses, we can't remain detached. For the same accusations that they had against Jesus are the ones that we have. Now, this is important. We'd be off base if we began to study, and here's how they thought in those days, and here's the opinions they had, and here's the convictions they have. No, it's the same ones that we have. If you take these groups of people, you're likely to find one that you would have easily slid into and been comfortable in. Because if we're going to draw near to Jesus, we all have the starting point of being in opposition to Jesus. Did you know that? Nobody is naturally inclined to the character and purpose, listen to me, and mission of Jesus. What's really common through the Gospels is a whole lot of people would have been fine with Jesus so long as he had adopted their agenda. In fact, there's somebody who sticks with them a long time until it ultimately becomes clear to this person that, wait a minute, Jesus is not building the kingdom I thought he was. Do you know what his name is? His name is Judas. And when it became clear to him that, wait a minute, Jesus isn't co-opting my purpose here, he sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. So as we walk through Mark 12, 13 to 17, I've got four headings, and we'll begin with this one. Number one, a trap is set. A trap is set. I take the word trap from verse 13. It says, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, this is a clear example of what I was referring to earlier, that rivals align as temporary allies in opposition to Jesus. The Pharisees and the Herodians. Uh, Danny Aiken, in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, puts it this way, the Pharisees were the conservatives, the right-wingers of that day. The Herodians were the liberals, the left-wingers, advocates of big government. The Pharisees hated Jesus because he was messing with their religious agenda. The Herodians opposed him because he was threatening their political advantage. Amazingly, Jesus brought them together. They both wanted to destroy him. Or Kent Hughes, in his commentary, says it this way, There would hardly be two groups with such opposing outlooks. The Pharisees represented resistance to Rome, the Herodians accommodation. But you see it there in verse 13. Some of the Pharisees, some of the Herodians... They come together to trap him in his talk. Now, if you were to get on Highway 64, and we just took the exit right over here by the hospital, and we're going to get on I-95, you'd see these big signs, right? I-95 north this way, I-95 south the other way. And let's just suppose you got on I-95 south, how many lanes are there? Well, ultimately, when you get down to it, there's two lanes. Now, here's the example. There's two lanes, but they're going in the same direction. That's true of the Pharisees and the Herodians. They think they're opposites, but they're actually both headed in the same direction. They're just doing it in different ways. Some of you would be more conservative. You might get in the right lane and you'd set your cruise control at one mile an hour before this, but below the speed limit and just kind of cruise along that way. And then others of you might zigzag all around and, you know, you're just blaring as fast as you can go. And that's a little bit like the Pharisees, their cruise control, 
The Herodians, do you know about them? I mean, who put John the Baptist to death was Herod, right? And they're just flying as fast as they can go. But ultimately, though they would see one another as rivals, they're headed in the same direction, which is they're headed away from God. Now, the Pharisees, they wanted their religious institutions to have governing power. The Herodians wanted their political institutions to have religious authority. The Pharisees used the name of God and the law of God to harshly condemn everyone around them. Meanwhile, the Herodians made a mockery of God's law and lived as if God, what God says in his law has absolutely no bearing on the world. The Pharisees wanted to rigidly maintain the traditions of the past. The Herodians wanted to strongly throw off the old traditions they believed were preventing them from making the country they wanted to progress in. So, if we're tracking together, the Pharisees, their religion was actually nothing more than camouflaged politics. And for the Herodians, their, politi- their politics, I'll get the words out in a minute, was nothing more than camouflaged religion. The greatest man ever born, according to Jesus, was John the Baptist. He called the Pharisees a brood of vipers and preached against the sinful immorality of Herod, and he was killed over it. They wanted to trap him. That's what it says. It's a Greek word that means going on a hunt. It's a reference to a well-thought-out plan with a strategy and a goal. That's number one. A trap is set. Second heading, the trap is tried. They came... And said to him, remember Jesus is in the temple. He's been teaching. No doubt there's a large group of people around. It's the Passover week. More people are in and around Jerusalem at this time than any other. So they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the law of God. Now, Paul's there. The trap is being tried. Do they really believe that? Here's the irony. What they said is true. He's not swayed by opinions. He's not about appearances. He does teach the law accurately and the things of God. They approach with flattery. Now, here's the trap. It's actually pretty ingenious when we pause and think about it. They ask a question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So if Jesus says that the Jewish people should pay the taxes, that's going to anger so many of them. The Jews were so sick of being ruled over by the Romans for a brief period of time, from 142 B.C. to 63 B.C., the Jews were independent of any foreign power ruling over them during what was known as the Hasmonean dynasty. But that was just a brief period of time, and now the Romans are ruling over them And the Romans have put in place the Herodians as sort of the local power that had jurisdiction. So if Jesus says pay the taxes, it's going to make these Jewish people feel really angry. But if Jesus says don't pay the taxes, well, that'll raise the ire of the Romans. And they'll have to step in because it can be accused, Jesus can be accused for breaking the law. So we have to admit it's a pretty good plan, isn't it? No, no, no matter which way he answers, he'll be trapped. There will be controversy no matter what he says. So the Pharisees get to accuse him before the priests of one who regards the Jewish nation under subjugation to Rome. And if he says not to pay the tax, the Herodians can accuse him before Pilate of being seditious. 
But who's really trapped here? Now, ironically, what they say again of him is true, but the other irony is they're the ones who are actually trapped. They're the ones who actually care about opinions and appearances. The trappers themselves are trapped. But remember what we said? We don't want to remain detached from this because if we're just talking about them and there, we'll miss the point of us and now. So if religion is merely politics, or when your politics is merely religion, you'll always be trapped. Trapped in what? Appearances and opinions. Who are the hypocrites? The Pharisees or the Herodians? It's the word Jesus, or the scripture uses here. He says, verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, knowing their hypocrisy, Here's something I need to know about myself. I'm a born and natural hypocrite. Anybody with me? That's who I am. Do you know how I'm born? Obsessed with opinions and appearances. Concerned most with what other people think about me. And my whole life is wired around that fear. We're all born trapped this way. But right here in this passage, there's one who is not a hypocrite. He's not a peddler of politics or dead religion. Here's God in the flesh, one born without hypocrisy. His, not, his heart's not ruled by hypocrisy. His heart's ruled by holiness. And the hypocrites come along and they try to trap the holy one in a snare. Now, here's one way. Here's one way that you can distinguish in your own heart if you're ruled by hypocrisy or by holiness. Hypocrites come and approach their enemy in order to harm them. The holy one seeks not to trap the hypocrites, but to deliver them. That's how you can know. That's how you can know in your own life. Godly, holy, self-sacrificing, grace-fueled love for others is the truest test for love for God. See, Jesus is not here just to argue and debate here in the temple. He is the temple, and he's going to the cross to lay down his life for the very ones who try to trap him. Can we pause here and let me ask you, what is your heart for others? That they be trapped or that they be delivered? The third point and the third heading, rather, as the scripture shows, is Jesus cannot be trapped. Jesus can't be trapped. They spring the trap, but Jesus can't be trapped. The mistake the Pharisees and the Herodians make, and it remains a very common mistake today, is they assume that Jesus seeks to build a kingdom in the same way that they want to. So that's their assumption. They, they think that Jesus is playing the same game that they are. But friends, Jesus did not come to build a kingdom like that. He came to build a much better one. He says, why do you put me to the test? You see, their heart, the Pharisees and the Herodians, both, they invert the Lord's prayer. What they really want is my kingdom to come, my will to be done in heaven as I want it to be done on earth. 
I heard this scripture this morning. The enemy, speaking of Satan, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And friends, if you're not careful, the love of a kingdom other than God's kingdom will consume you. And when that happens, you will be consumed. Jesus hears their question. Knowing their hypocrisy, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So Jesus asked for a denarius. It's a little silver coin back then that uh, was the, had the value of a day's wage. Now, here's where I had to pause. You ready for this? As I studied the scripture, here's something that I saw that why did Jesus have to ask for someone to hand him a denarius? Why did he have to say, can someone hand me a denarius? Why? Well, it's because he didn't have one. He couldn't reach into his own pocket. And can we creep a little bit closer to where the Pharisees and the Herodians, though they saw themselves as as enemies, how they actually have something deeply in common? You know what Jesus, when he put his finger on the pulse about the Pharisees, said? They love, does anybody remember? They love money. They love to walk around in their robes in order to be seen. You know what the Herodians want? They want to keep having these lavish parties like we saw when John the Baptist was killed. They, 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 They want power and influence. Did you know that when you drill down deeper into the desire for political power and religious power, what you find? You keep drilling down the desire for money because if we believe if we have more of that we'll have more of everything jesus said wherever your treasure is that's where your heart will be if money is your god then government and dead religion will have a disproportionate interest in hold of your heart and what we want to see is jesus has wealth to offer you that opinions and appearances can never buy those things are only found in the kingdom think of how influential money is in our own politics the more money you give the more access you have jesus takes this denarius small silver coin on one side of the denarius was pictured the head of caesar it's his head on the coin and the inscription said tiberius caesar son of the divine augustus on the flip side was the inscription Pontifex Maximus, chief priest. And that's what Jesus is holding. And he says, let me look at it. They brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's? And Jesus said to them, render, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. So can I give you a real simple application? Pay your taxes. That's what Jesus is saying. God has ordained the family, the church, and human government. None of them, none of them work perfectly in the world. But Christians should pray and work and serve for each of them to work well. 
When it comes to our earthly government, the Bible again and again and again, Romans 13, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Peter 2, our responsibility is to honor and obey the government so long as it does not interfere with our ability to honor and worship God. As the disciples say in Acts, we must obey God rather than men. The coin has Caesar's image on it. What's the point of what Jesus says? Whose image and likeness is on you? The coin has Caesar's image. Whose image is on you? God's image is on you. And obviously what Jesus is saying is, in the fallen world, you'll quickly give to Caesar what actually belongs to God. You, your heart, your hope, your allegiance, your affection, your attention, your worship. And that brings us to the fourth point. Jesus will not trap you, but he can free you. Whether you're a first century Herodian, a 21st century believer living in communist China, socialist Belgium, or America, Jesus is the king, and he invites you into his kingdom. God's image is on you. Now, the image has been marred by sin, Jesus has come to redeem us. Now, what is true of all of us is we are going to give our heart to a kingdom. Apart from Christ, we seek to build the kingdom of self. And then you can decide whether you're going to throw your lot in with the Pharisees or the Sadducees or rise to lead the council or have the place of Pilate or Caesar himself. But can I ask a simple question? Where are the Pharisees today? Where are the Herodians today? Even Caesar. See, all of those kingdoms are momentary. Their kingdoms seem to matter so much in their own day, but the kingdom of God alone is forever. So I want to give you two real simple, real clear applications as we think about giving to God what belongs to God. The first one is this. All of us. All of us need to understand following Jesus has significant consequences. It'd be really easy to simply say, hey, don't be like the Pharisees and don't be like the Herodians, be like Jesus. But what does that mean? Where does Jesus go from here? Hey, friends, at the end of the day, when we're talking about the Herodians and the Pharisees and the council and the Roman government, at the end of the day, they're the ones who take his life. Hey, at the beginning of the service, I read to you a sequence of verses. Let your reasonableness be known to all. The Lord is at hand. Be kind to one another. I want you to know that I'm not naive in thinking that if you'll do all those things, hey, everything's going to go well. No, every verse that I read at the start of the service, was spoken or written by either Jesus or Paul. And they killed both of those men. So this is not a Christian message of, hey, let's just all, if we'll be nice, everything. No, no. If you follow Christ, you'll likely go to the cross. But that's what he said to begin with. Take up your, deny yourself, and then take up your cross and follow me. All of us should understand that following Jesus has significant consequences. But when all those different groups align against him, what does he do? 
He lays down his life. He forgives. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Do you not think that Jesus understood that it was Caesar's government that will put him to death, Paul to death, Peter to death? It's a Roman cross that Jesus hangs on. It's not a call to fatalism. It is a call to live in this world as an exile. I want you to turn with me to the book of Ezra. I read this week in my Bible reading, and I... (laughs) Just going to give a plug right now for daily Bible reading. I want the Lord to speak to you and know him, and you've got to be regular in his word. And the book of Ezra there in the Old Testament has a a passage that... uh, I read maybe Wednesday or Thursday this, this past week. And, and again, when you read the Bible, <clears throat> two great questions to ask is, what does it say about God, and then what does it say about me? So Ezra is an exile, and he's returning home, and I think he is a great picture of how we ought to live in the, in the world. And in Ezra chapter 8, verse 21, I see something of Ezra... That has not been true often in my life, and I want it to change. Ezra 8, verse 21 says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king the hand of our God is for good and all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. I think so often in my life, I've looked in other places than God for what Ezra asks for. But here's the caution. Ezra is a scribe. Do you know what group of people emerges from Ezra the scribe? The Pharisees do. So can you see how thin the line is? You see how thin the line is from one generation wanting to be devoted to God And the next generation, still acting as if they were, but listen to me, but not fasting, not really, not seeking the Lord, not praying, not seeking him together, not relying on him. When that happens, you begin to have a form of religion, but deny its power. And that, by the way, is a warning Paul gives of the last days, a form of godliness, but denying its power. Pay the tax to Caesar. But can you see the distinction between Caesar and Jesus? Jesus is not asking for a tax. He's offering grace. The the only way, friends, we'll do well for our country is loving Jesus more than we love anything else. We tend to get it mixed up. We tend to give Caesar what belongs to God and then give to God what the amount of tension and devotion should be given to Caesar. So first, understand that following Jesus has significant consequences. And then second, understand that all of us 
all of us are prone to give to Caesar what belongs to God. One other passage to look at is Acts chapter 1. Turn with me there. Acts chapter 1. All of us, all of us are prone to believe that the government, Caesar, can provide what we need and what we want. But it won't because it can't. But I just want you to take a moment with me to recognize how powerful that false hope can be even among those who are devoted to follow Jesus. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Before we read this, think with me. Jesus has been crucified. Jesus has been buried. Jesus has been raised. Powerful things have happened. He is standing there about to ascend back into heaven and sit down at the right hand of the Father. It's a pretty momentous moment, right? And in this moment when Christ has been crucified and he's been raised and he's gone back after Peter and James and John and restored them, look at the last thing they ask before he ascends. So they had come together. They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's a powerful desire, isn't it? Even after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, they still want it so badly. And so do we. We all have a notion of what things should look like and be like. When they talk about, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel, they have it deep in their hearts of a visible, political, nationalistic kingdom. And we're just like them. But the kingdom of God is much better. It's never been and never will be about one nation. The kingdom of God is about people from every ethnicity. And as I read through this passage, here's a thought that came to me, so I pass it on to you. This was the last question they asked before the Holy Spirit came. And once the Holy Spirit came, they never asked it again. A spirit-filled person is a kingdom-focused person, a kingdom of God-focused person. What is your heart really set on? And in light of our passage from Mark, what is it that you're rendering your life to? you're giving your life for. Now, in conclusion, here's another way that you can distinguish. When you render your life and heart and hopes and dreams and expectations and emotions and desires for any kingdom other than Jesus, you will inevitably have to find other people that you believe are standing in the way of you having the kingdom that you want. And they must go. That's the history of the world. Seeking dominion over other people. Only the kingdom of God. 
Only the kingdom of God when you render to Jesus what belongs to him. And friends, what does belong to him? Everything that you have and everything that you are and all of your hopes and expectations and wants and desires. You cannot draw near to Jesus without becoming like Jesus. So his desires become your desires. And so when you look at building the kingdom, it's never going to be about you having to destroy, condemn others, but rather, even if it costs you your own life, it be laid down for the furtherance of the kingdom. Render to Caesar what belongs to him and to God what belongs to God. Let's stand together and we'll pray together. I'm going to pray with you and then we'll have a time of invitation where again I'm ask you to to prayerfully respond to what we've seen in the scripture as we're called to live as strangers and aliens and exiles in this very brief life let's pray together father i thank you that we have a king who has not come to tax or take from us he's come to offer himself in our place as caesar could look at a denarius and say that belongs to me oh god you can look at us and say we belong to you I really believe the only way we'll do well for our country and for this world is when we love Jesus more than we love anything else. I confess to you, God, there are many times in my life I get this confused. I get it backwards, and I want to give to you what the amount of attention and time and that, that I ought to give to Caesar, so to speak, and I give to Caesar what really belongs to you. Help us as followers of Jesus to live distinct lives in our generation. And Father, I am thankful, I am thankful that you are patient towards us and merciful. And again, my, my prayer is, is that we would draw near to you and in so doing become more and more like you.